Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. God created a reasonable universe and us as reasonable beings that he reasons with via his word. It follows then that we can reason with each other about our faith. Lead teacher Jeff Norris finishes the series Radical Renewal with this sermon entitled Reasonable Faith, which covers Acts chapter 24, verses 22 to 27. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. As we think about this morning and finishing up our time in Acts, Jenny Forrester is going to come. She's going to read to us uh, God's word from Acts 24. The word of our Lord, Acts 24. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Thank you, Jenny. Let's read together aloud our prayer of illumination. Oh, make your word a swift word, passing from the ear to the heart, from the heart to the lip and conversation, that as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word, but accomplish that for which it is given. Amen. And amen. The date was April 27th, 2011. Rachel and our three kids at the time, our youngest Annie had not been born yet, were huddled underneath the stairs of our two-story home that had no basement, just on a slab. We were in the closet. We had put bike helmets on the kids. And somehow in the midst of the storm, we had not lost power. And so we were streaming on the laptop coverage of the tornado that was coming straight for our town. We were living in Tuscaloosa, Alabama at the time, and there was a bank in downtown Tuscaloosa that had a uh, a, uh, camera mounted to the top of it. It was the Skycam, although there are no skyscrapers in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. But it was the tallest building, and so they had a camera, and they had tuned it west. I looked down at one point, And my hands were involuntarily shaking as I see this half mile wide tornado coming straight for us. I knew where the building that the camera was, I knew where it was situated, and I knew that if the tornado went south of that building, in other words, I knew that if the camera turned left following the tornado, that we would be safe. But I knew that if it turned right, that if the tornado's path went north, that it would be coming straight for us and with no doubt would have wiped us off the foundation of our house. As the tornado came closer 
Just before the power went out, we were able to see long enough that it was going south. And for a brief moment, there was great relief. There were prayers of thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. But that was quickly followed by great concern because I began to think, Rachel and I both began to think of all the people that we knew, loved ones, friends, family, who were south of there. It destroyed everything in its path. By the time it hit Tuscaloosa, it was almost a mile wide. Just carving a path through the heart of the town. It's interesting, in the days and in the weeks following, as we just rallied to every day, every person in Tuscaloosa seemingly focused on helping. And as we made our way through the twisted metal and Wood and debris absolutely strewn everywhere. Began to pay attention to people's stories. And there were so many stories. 52 people died that day in that storm. And as some of the friends and loved ones who were interviewed about those who had passed, it would come out that not all by any means, but some of those who had passed that day did so because they had not heeded the warning. They had not taken cover. There were others who likewise didn't take cover, didn't take shelter, didn't heed the warning, but in God's providence, they lived. There was, there was this one interview that I remember watching on a local news channel of someone who didn't take cover but survived. Lost everything as a result, even some family members perished, but she didn't. And as the reporter was asking her questions, she said this. Why didn't you take cover? Why didn't you take shelter? Did you not hear the sirens? And the lady's response was, yes. Yeah, we heard the sirens. But we didn't take cover because we just didn't think it was real. Now, you may laugh and think, how do you not know it's real? If you've grown up in the South... And Georgia certainly gets tornado warnings, but for whatever reason, because the topography, atmosphere, I don't know what, but Mississippi and Alabama get a ton of tornadoes. And there are so many tornado warnings in the spring in particular that you can become calloused thinking that, oh, well, another warning will be fine. And so thinking empathetically towards these people, you go, yeah, I can understand that. I can understand it, just another warning, I'll be fine. I just didn't think it was real, meaning the danger was real. You know, I think that's a, somewhat of a good fitting metaphor for just the reality of the human heart being bent towards cynicism and unbelief. That's kind of our first step into any situation, is it not? We're given to cynicism and unbelief. Now listen, sometimes our cynicism and unbelief can serve us well. It protects us from gullibility and from naivety. We can, we can go, you know what, I'm just not gonna be that person that believes everything I hear. Sometimes that serves us well. But when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to belief in Jesus, faith in him, our cynicism and our unbelief will be our very destruction, according to the scriptures. Because what, the, what does the gospel invite us into? 
The gospel invites us into, the good news of Jesus invites us into belief to check our unbelief and cynicism at the door, at the door of faith. And to believe not just upon one who will rescue us from impending danger or judgment, but in whom, the very one who rescues us, we find the very depths of joy that we have been longing for in all of life. That it's not just a rescue from the storm, so to speak, but it's a rescue into a new reality, into a new life, both here now, yes, in part, but full, unthinkable joy in the life to come. We're picking up in Acts, in a part of the story where it can feel repetitive. I said this last week, but you get into the 20s, the chapter 20s of Acts, and it feels repetitive because Paul is on trial. And what, what begins to happen is that the Jews have had enough with Paul, and they're coming after him with all that they have. They're, they're creating different scenarios to get him before Roman ruling figures to get him ousted. Because they believe that if they can get the ringleader taken out, that the movement will go away. They thought this with Jesus. Now they're thinking this with Paul. They're not learning, are they? But they're coming, they're coming after Paul, and he continues to be on trial. And these Roman governing figures don't know what to do with him. Because as they hear the reasons against Paul, they each conclude that he's really done nothing wrong. We have nothing that we can execute him for. And he's a Roman citizen, so we have to treat him such. And so they keep just kicking the can down the road. They keep just passing him on to the next Roman ruler. So that eventually, where we'll get, as we finish out the later chapters, is eventually Paul will be in Rome, appearing before Caesar. If not Caesar himself, one of Caesar's representatives. And so where we are in the story is that Paul is now appearing before this Roman governor, named Felix. Let me catch you up on what's happened because we're jumping ahead in the story a little bit from where we were last week. In Acts 23, after we finished the passage that we were in last week, we begin to learn that the Jews have conspired and they've put together a plot to ambush and kill Paul. And it was Paul's nephew who actually heard of this plan and snuck into the jail and told Paul of this plan. Paul was then able to alert the authorities. And the, the tribune that we learned about last week, Lysias, the Roman tribune, protected Paul. He protected Paul by sending him to Caesarea from Jerusalem to the Roman governor, Felix. This is how he protected Paul. He protected him with 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. The Jews were not going to get to Paul as he traveled from Jerusalem to Caesarea. He gets to Caesarea and the high priest, Ananias, and a, a great number of these Jews traveled to Jeru from Jerusalem to Caesarea as well to make their case before Felix against Paul and for Paul to make his defense. This is what they charged Paul with. These are the three charges that as they presented to Felix, this is what they said. They said, he's a troublemaker. He stirs up riots, which this would have been a concern for any Roman governor because they, they hated riots. They hated any sense of anyone bucking against Roman authority and rule. And they had already squelched many Jewish revolts in the past. I'll talk more about that in just a moment. 
Secondly, they said he's the ringleader of a sect of the Nazarenes. This is how the Jews referred to Christianity. You'll notice in the passage that, that we're reading this morning, Felix, at the very first sentence, it says that Felix was very familiar with the way. Because that's how Christians called themselves back then. That's what people called the Christians. Why? Well, part of, part of it was because Jesus had said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So it had become customary to call those who follow Jesus, those who follow the way. But the Jews hated that. So they called it a sect of the Nazarenes. Jesus was, a Naz- was from Nazareth, and so they said that this is a sect of the Nazarenes. That's another way of saying this is a cult, and it needs to be put down. The only way, again, the only way it's going to be put down is if we put Paul down. He's the ringleader. Lastly, they accused Paul of profaning the temple, saying that he had brought a Gentile into the Jewish courts of the temple in Jerusalem beyond the courts of the Gentiles, which was not true, but it's what they were accusing him of. Let me give you a little bit of information about Felix and Drusilla. Look at verse 24 again. I want to zoom in on verses 24 through 27. It says this in verse 24, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. That's important for us to really kind of understand what's going on. I want us to get there. I want us to be in the moment with Paul and understand who these people are. So Felix, who was Felix? We can learn a little bit from historians from writings of that day to know a little bit about him. First, we learn this. He was a former slave. Very interesting. The former slave in the Roman Empire. Through various circumstances and situations, he had become a freedman and then worked his way up all the way to governor. And he had been stationed, if you will, in Caesarea, but put there by the Emperor Claudius in AD 52. 52 AD. Great power. It's an incredible story. In fact, they would have probably made some type of documentary back then about Felix. Moving from a slave to governor. Incredible story. Even in the Roman Empire, incredible story. It's debated, but his administration probably lasted about eight years, from 52 to 60 AD, which would perfectly coincide with what we know of Paul's life and timeline. Now, this is interesting. The most well-known Roman historian, Tacitus, said this about Felix. He said, quote, he occupied the office of a king while having the mind of a slave, saturated with cruelty and lust. It's interesting how, what's coming to fruition here, because Felix had been horrible to the Jews. He had squelched a few previous Jewish revolts and in so doing had been uh, very cruel to them, killing many of them. And so yet here we are in a twist of fate where the Jews are now coming to Felix and they're buttering him up and they're telling him how great he is and they're telling him, we didn't read it in our text this morning, but previous texts, if you wanna go back, they're saying, oh, Felix, who rules with peace. We wanna state our case before you today against this insurrectionist Paul, the one who stirs up riots, this troublemaker. 
Now, Felix's wife was Drusilla. Drusilla has an interesting background as well. She is or was the youngest daughter of Herod Agrippa. I want you to stay with me here because I'm about to get into some some dates and some history that if that's not your thing, you're going to totally tune out. Stick with me. So Herod Agrippa was the son of King Herod the Great. King Herod the Great was who was the king of the Jews. And when I'm saying king, don't think Roman anything. This is not in the Roman Empire. This is in the Jewish kingship. Okay? King Herod the Great was the one who was the king of the Jews when Jesus was born, which I want, I want to make sure we have the right dates here because we mess this up a lot. We often think that Jesus was born at zero, that time changed, that years changed on the birth of Jesus. We're close, but it's not exactly accurate. Why do we know that? Well, we know from historical records that King Herod the Great died in 4 BC. So if he was still alive when Jesus was born, then we know that Jesus had to have been born during or before 4 BC. Well, we also know that the wise men came to visit while King Herod was still alive. And we know from scripture that Jesus was not an infant anymore, probably a two to three year old by the time the wise men came, which means that Jesus was most likely born in six or seven BC. Has nothing to do with this message. That was free, okay? (laughs) I just wanted you to know that because it irks me sometimes when we say Jesus was born in zero. He wasn't, but it does matter in this respect. King Herod the Great, dies in 4 BC, and the throne is left for his son, King Agrippa. And King Agrippa was perhaps, now this is a tall task, but I think he accomplished it, more selfish, more arrogant, more evil than even his father, King Herod the Great. King Herod the Great had built the temple and all kinds of cities unto his glory, and King Agrippa kept going right on line with his father, building all kinds of cities for himself. In fact, Another freebie. Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Nazareth was about three miles from a rock quarry that they used to build a new city for King Agrippa called Zippori. Most likely, most likely, Jesus and Joseph would have risen at dawn every morning and walked three miles to Zippori. Jesus probably helped as a carpenter with his father Joseph build this city for King Agrippa. Because a carpenter in that day did not mean working with wood. There is no wood in Israel. I don't know if you've been there, but there's no trees. It's all stone. He was a stone worker. King Agrippa was all about himself, so much so that in Acts chapter 12, in Acts chapter 12, we get this one little quick account where it says that King Agrippa was ruling and judging and that people were coming to him and he had such wisdom And he spoke with such eloquent speech that the Jews gathered around and began to really worship him. And they said something that's recorded for us in Acts chapter 12 that it said, he must be a God. And King Agrippa did not reject that. He received it. And so Acts chapter 12, Luke tells us that the angel of the Lord came and took him out because of his pride. So as of Acts 12, there is no more King Agrippa. Now we're to King Agrippa II, the grandson of King Herod the Great. Why am I telling you all this? Because Drusilla was the sister of King Agrippa II. She had great power. She was well known in the Jewish kingdom, as it were. 
and she had married Felix. She was actually Felix's third wife. Felix had um, seduced her away from her rightful husband. Y'all, I'm just gonna stop here and say it was a soap opera. (laughs) It was so messed up, and Felix was just a bizarre man. Okay, we'll leave it at that. Drusilla was known for her beauty, and she was beloved. But she had turned on the Jewish nation because she married a Roman governor. Perhaps it said in the beginning of our text that Felix knew a great deal about the way, and perhaps he learned that from his Jewish wife. But watch what happens. As we get to verse 25, something really interesting begins to happen. It says this. It says, and he reasoned, talking about Paul, and as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. Now that word reasoned, that's the Greek word dialegami, which you may hear it, that's the basis for our word dialogue. So I don't want you to think that what was happening is that Felix is now meeting with Paul and Drusilla with him, and they're interested. They're actually interested. They're intrigued by the faith. And I think what's happening here is they're intrigued by the faith because Felix thought he knew a lot about the way. But as he's listening to Paul, he's going, hold on, that's that's pretty different from what I had heard. And so he summons Paul, and he says, tell me more. And Paul gives him a reasonable faith. He begins to reason with him. He's not preaching to him. He's not lecturing him. He's dialoguing with him. He's reasonably dialoguing with him. They're conversing together. And what does it say that they converse about? What is it that Paul says, look, here's some things that you need to know about the way, about faith in Jesus. First, it says that he reasoned with him about righteousness. Now, some people will say, well, because Felix was so unrighteous and because Drusilla was seemingly probably very unrighteous with him. He was just talking to him about morality. Like, look, you're really messed up and here's how you get right. But we know Paul. We know Paul from his writings, don't we? We know what he teaches in the book of Romans and what he teaches in Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians and all of his writings. We know that's not how Paul approaches things. We know that when Paul reasons about the faith that what he's bringing to the table is a righteousness outside of ourselves. Because what he's bringing to the table, first and foremost, is he's trying to help everyone, all of us, not just the Felix and the Drusillas of the world, but all of us to understand, first and foremost, that we are all unrighteous, that there is nothing righteous within us. He's, he's taking us back. Every time he's presenting the gospel, he's getting it back to the Old Testament where it says that no one is good, no, not one, no one is righteous, no one desires God. Doesn't mean that Humanity's incapable of doing morally good things outwardly. It means at the heart level, every single one of us are tainted with sin, meaning that all of our deeds, every single one of them are unrighteous at the heart. And so no doubt, Paul was presenting to Felix and to Drusilla that reality. And then where's the good news? Well, the good news is you don't leave us there. You don't don't just say, hey, we're all unrighteous. Go deal with it. He follows it up by saying, but here's the good news. You're unrighteous and there's nothing that you could ever do to be righteous in God's sight except there's one. 
There is one who came as your substitute and my substitute. The one who would stand in our place and be righteous for us. To achieve for us the righteous standard of the law. To in every way be sinless. To be a substitutionary righteous atonement for us. To stand in the gap as it were. He's, he's teaching and conversing with Felix and Drusilla. He's saying, look, you want to know about faith in Christ? It means that we're trusting in the righteous one to cover us. So that through faith in him, he actually indwells us and covers us from the wrath of God. That's what the cross is all about. That God would actually pour out the just wrath of being a holy God who has to be consistent with his character to punish sin, but to do so on the only one who never deserved it. To pour it out on Jesus in our place so that through faith in him, the righteous requirement of the law has been met and the righteous judgment of God has been complete on him. So that through faith in him, now what do we get? We get the righteousness of Christ. God sees us as though we are covered by Jesus. So that when he looks at us, he doesn't see our unrighteousness. He sees the righteousness of Christ. And he's pleased with us. And not only that, he says, not only am I pleased with you now, but I'm going to give you the inheritance of the righteous one, of Jesus. So that when you die, you will be with me just as he is with me now, seated on the right hand at the right hand of the Father. You will be seated with him. So not only is his righteousness yours, but his inheritance is yours. Why? Because you, through faith, are in him, and he is in you. That's the righteousness of God. And this is what he's presenting to Felix and Drusilla, and they're intrigued. They wanna know more. So he keeps telling them more. So secondly, he reasons with them about self-control. Now that may seem weird to us, but he starts talking to them about, hey, so in life, you, you feel, no doubt, that you can't be in control of anything, including yourself. You want to do this, and you can't do it. You want to do that, and you can't do it. What you don't want to do, you end up doing. What you don't want to do, you do it anyway, and all, vice versa, all that. And you just live frustrated. But did you know that there's hope, even in this life, to be uh, indwelt by someone who actually gives you the power to live the life that you've always longed for? to actually begin walking in the righteousness that is ours in Jesus, to have self-control, not through our own power to muster it up, but through the power of God in us. And so he begins to talk to them about this and, they, and they're intrigued. And then he gets to the third one and he begins to reason to them about this. He says, but look, you have to understand, God is a righteous judge. I mentioned it a moment ago, but he has to stay true to his character, which means that he has to punish sin. He's a holy God, unique and other, spotless, pure in every way. He cannot be associated in any way with sin. And so he has to judge sin. But he's given you a way out, a merciful, gracious, loving way out, and it's only in Jesus. And so if you will hide yourself in Jesus by faith in him, the judgment is on Christ in your place. But if you don't, if you don't believe upon Jesus, then you will stand before this living God who created you and made you for himself. You will stand before him one day. And if you're not under the covering of faith in the righteous one, 
then the judgment is on your head, not his. So he looked at Felix and he looked at Drusilla and he said, there is a coming judgment. Are you, get, are you gonna stand before God naked in your unrighteousness or are you gonna stand before God covered in the righteousness of Jesus? And it's at this point that Felix freaked out. Watch what happens. He says, Felix, after he walks through those three things, it says, Felix was alarmed. That's a really weak translation. That word in the Greek means terrified and trembling. Felix is freaking out about this judgment. And he says to him, go away. Go away. I'll, I'll call you back when I get an opportunity, which means when I feel like it. But this, this is too much. Go away. Verse 26 gives us some insight into Felix's heart, what's really going on. Because what we've learned so far about Felix and Drusilla is that they're interested. They're intrigued. They're curious about this way of Christ. But they have some competing desires within them that we are soon to learn in this next verse are just too strong. Verse 26, at the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. In other words, what he really wanted more than Paul's savior is he wanted Paul's money. He wanted a bribe. It's forbidden in the Roman government to take brides for the sake of a prisoner, but it happened. It happened a lot, actually. And so he wanted that from Paul. He's like, look, man, if you really wanna go free, give me some money. Paul says, I don't, it's not about that. I don't, want to, I don't want you to take my money. I want you to take my savior. But, but watch the wrestling that's happening with Felix because the very next sentence says, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. And, and I believe that deeply what's going on with Felix here is that he's really wrestling. He wants the bribe, yes. What I really want is your money, but can you come back and talk to me a little bit more about this stuff again? Like, uh, say that part again. Uh, uh, is that real? Is that true? Now, sadly, the very next verse tells us another part of Felix's heart. Verse 27, when two years had elapsed, two years, two years. <laughs> you would think if you've ever been convinced or not convinced that salvation is from the Lord, this would convince you because you would think that if you had two years with the apostle Paul, perhaps the greatest evangelist we've ever known, everybody he's sharing with for two years is coming to faith. But Felix's heart is so hard because ultimately watch what he does. He says, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus in desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So here's what we know about Felix. Felix was intrigued, he was interested, he was curious about Jesus. But he loved money and he loved glory more. He had been cruel to the Jewish people, and at this point in time, I guess he has decided that by keeping Paul in imprisonment, he'll get favor back and get some glory from the Jews. Felix had an incredibly hard heart. He heard the gospel. He heard the warning of the coming judgment. He heard the good news of Jesus, and he said, just like that lady in that interview, I just 
don't think it's real. Cynicism and unbelief won the day for Felix. It reminds me of Matthew 13, where Jesus is telling a parable, and we call it the parable of the four soils. And Jesus just very clearly explains that there's seed, and the seed represents the word of God. And this seed is spread out through the kingdom of God by those who are in the kingdom. And they spread the seed far and wide. And some of it falls on the first type of soil, which is just the path that's so trodden down and packed in that the seed can't take root at all. And it just falls away. The second type of soil is the rocky soil, where there's just enough crevices in the rocks and in the, uh, the, the little space in between the rocks to where the seed takes a little bit of root, germinates just a little bit, but quickly dies. The third type of soil that Jesus explains is he says it's the thorny soil, meaning that it actually takes root in the soil and it sprouts and it begins to grow, but it's choked out, never produces fruit. It's choked out by what? By the cares of the world. Sound familiar, Felix? By the love of money and the love of glory. But there's a fourth soil that Jesus explains, and he says it's the good soil. And the seed falls upon good soil and it takes... It germinates, it grows, and it produces fruit, 30 to 60 to 100-fold. Now, there's debate on this, but my personal interpretation of that text is that there's only one soil that's a believer, that's a saved, born-again follower of Jesus, made new from the inside out through faith in him, and that's the fourth soil. Why? Because it's the only one that, that bore fruit. Now, that fruit's ugly a lot of times, it doesn't look healthy a lot of times. We're bearing fruit and we're, and we're, we're still struggling with sin, right? But there's, still, there's fruit. And God in his grace is making the fruit more beautiful every year of our lives as we grow in him. But what's your heart this morning? Where's the seed fallen in your heart? Is it fallen on the path, never taken root? Fallen in the rocky soil, maybe perhaps you've been intrigued or in interested in the past, but it's just never really come to any fruition in your life. Maybe it's fallen in thorny soil where you've been really interested in church and all that comes with church and this old Jesus thing, and you might even say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but really, you know deep down at the heart level, anything that would resemble saving faith in you has been choked out by the cares of the world, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. But for those of us who follow Jesus, we know that it's certainly not clean and easy and that our fruit sometimes look, looks mangled. But Christ is at work in us, doing his work. What do we take away from this? Two things very briefly here. One, what do we take away from a passage like this? First, we ask God to give us passion to speak and courage to reason. Actually, that's the second one. Let's go back to the first one. There we go. Ask God, to give, ask God to give us ears to hear and faith to believe. Oh God, would you give me ears to hear and faith to believe? Is your heart like Felix's this morning? Then the prayer for you is God, would you give me ears to hear the sweet music of your gospel? And would you grant me faith to believe? Secondly, as you just heard, ask God to give us, if you are a follower of Christ, a passion to speak and a courage to reason. To, to be faithful, to talk to people about Jesus. 
You'll never have all the answers. You'll never, never be able to be the, the great apologist that you want to be. You'll never be, uh, even if you don't have the gift of evangelism, which is most of us, it doesn't mean that God's not putting us in situations and in places and with people to say, look, uh, just, just speak. Reason about the faith and let me do the work. All I'm, all I'm asking you to do, I'm not asking you to change hearts. All I'm asking you, God says, is to spread seed. The seed of the word of God, the good news of Jesus. Why? Because you never know what might happen. The temptation for us is to believe that there's no hope for the Felixes of the world, that their hearts are too hard and they're too far gone. Maybe so for some, but no heart is beyond the reach of the grace of God. I want to close with a story before we come to the table. Many years ago when I was in college, I had a speaker come. Um, there was a speaker who came to a fall retreat that I was a part of with Campus Crusade for Christ at the time. I don't remember anything this speaker said, but this one story. He told a story about when he was in college in the early 80s. He was in a fraternity, and he had begin, begun walking with the Lord, and he was loving, loving, growing like a weed, just loving Jesus. And every day he was spending time in the Word, and he was growing like crazy, and he, and he began to sense, and those of you who've walked with Jesus know that when we say, hey, I heard from God, it doesn't mean that we heard a voice from God audibly. It just means, off, just means that he's speaking to our conscience as we sit with him. And the more he sat with the Lord, he, he sensed that God was saying, I want you to share the gospel with John, this guy in his fraternity. And he said, I didn't want to do that because John was crazy. The wildest guy in our fraternity. He hated Jesus. He told me he hated the whole Christianity things. He, he was so antagonistic to the faith and he made fun of me. I don't want to share the gospel with John. And the more he sat with the Lord day after day, the more the Lord was just saying, do it. And so finally, after a lot of prayer and procrastination, he gets up the nerve and the courage to go to John's door, knock on his door. John comes to the door and he says, look, I know you're gonna think I'm crazy, but I, I gotta talk to you about something. Do you have just a moment? And he says, okay, yeah, sure, come in. And he sits with him and just for maybe five, 10 minutes, he presents to him just the basics of what it looks like, what it means to have faith in Jesus. The next part of the story is the curveball because John said, get out. Can't believe you'd waste my time with this stuff. I can't believe you would come in here and say this to me, get out. And he kicks him out of his room. Years go by. In fact, 20 years go by and he's back at a reunion with his fraternity brothers. John's not at the reunion, but Brad is. Brad walks up to to this guy named Gary who's sharing the story and he says, hey, I, I lost touch with you. I didn't know how to get in touch with you, but I gotta tell you something I've been sitting on for years. He said, this is crazy, but do you, do you remember, it was this day, you, you went to John's room and you talked to him about Jesus. Do you remember that? And Gary's eyes got big and he said, of course, I, yeah. What, why are you asking me about that? And he said, do you remember that my room was right next door? Do you remember how thin those walls were? He said, I was in my room studying when you shared all that with John and it wrecked me. And when you tried to lead John through that prayer, I prayed that prayer and I came to faith. And I didn't know what to do with it for a while. I didn't tell anybody. And by the time I was ready to tell you, I didn't know how to get in touch with you. We had graduated, we had moved on. And so I'm telling you now, thank you Thank you for sharing the gospel with John. You never know 
what God is doing when he's spreading the seed of the good news, the word of God and faith in Jesus through us. You never know. And we may not know until heaven. And I'll tell you this, there will be many Felixes who come up to us in heaven and say, thank you. And we'll go, you're here? <laughs> wow. God really is merciful. <laughs> and I think in that moment, God will remind us, hey, you're, you're all Felixes. You're all Felixes. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace and your goodness that you save sinners. And would you indeed give us ears to hear and faith to believe? And would you give us passion to speak and courage to reason for the faith in the lives of those that you've put around us? Would you do it unto your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.